Hello. Welcome to the Josh Marshall Podcast. This is Tierney Sneed out of the DC Bureau. We have a very special episode of the podcast. Josh is not with us, but today I have a special guest, Mark Joseph Stern from Slate. He is their very excellent uh, legal reporter, covers the Supreme Court, covers a lot of other major legal cases. And he's here with me today to talk about the census citizenship case. We were both at the Supreme Court oral arguments last month. There's been some really interesting developments since then. We're waiting for the decision, you know, in the next couple weeks. Um, But first, we're going to have the word from our sponsor. The climate is warming up. The political climate is boiling over. Yep, it's sure getting hot in here, but Grady's Cold Brew can help you cool things down this summer. Order online to get their famous New Orleans-style iced coffee delivered straight to your door. Just add water to their all-in-one kit and get 36 servings of cold brew for less than a buck a cup. Grady's will end up saving you a ton of money, but also a ton of time. No need to wait in coffee shop lines because Grady's dispenses directly from your fridge, already cold and completely customizable for your perfect cup. Grady's Cold Brew is independently owned and operated in New York City since 2011. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with the promo code TPM. All right, Mark, as I mentioned, uh, we were both at the uh, the court hearing a couple weeks ago, but since then we've had a, a major bombshell break in the case. Um, it, you know, it probably won't play a specific role in the Supreme Court decision, but it is really important new evidence that's emerged, um, and there's going to be some hashing it out at the lower court level. First, let's just remind our, our listeners who maybe haven't been up to speed what the new evidence was. And if you want to introduce yourself a little bit more, feel free to do that too, Mark. <laughs> uh, thank you very much. Uh, so happy to be here. Uh, yeah, I, I've covered the census case for Slate. I was with you in the courtroom when oral arguments went down. And uh, now we're both waiting since it's June for that opinion to drop any day now, right? Oh, yeah. Every every Monday, just, you know, mm-hmm. on high alert. And soon it's going to be even more than Mondays. Oh, yeah. Adding days. That's when it gets real. Um, so, so, yeah, when that case was heard, the big dispute was whether whether the Trump administration added this citizenship question to the census legally, which is obviously a question that uh, sort of gets into how and why the Trump administration added it. Under federal law, the the president, the executive branch, can't take some kind of uh, agency action that's arbitrary and capricious, right? So you can't just willy-nilly say, we're going to change the census. Uh, you have to give a, a good reason, and it's supposed to be the real reason. So the Trump administration said, well, we want to actually better enforce the Voting Rights Act, which is something that the Trump administration has never enforced before. But they say, (laughs) well, we want to start enforcing it and we need citizenship data to enforce it to make sure that the votes of Hispanics uh, are not being diluted. A few weeks after that hearing, and we'll get into how that point was debated during arguments, but a few weeks after, uh, this bombshell dropped. Uh, that basically proved, once again, there's already proof here, but this is more evidence that the Trump administration's rationale is just not true. Uh, And what happened was the the GOP gerrymandering guru for many, many years was a guy named Thomas Hoffler. He traveled around the country teaching Republican lawmakers how to gerrymander. He himself uh, drew some of the most egregiously gerrymandered maps in the country, including in states like 
like North Carolina and Texas. Uh, and after he died, he left a bunch of thumb drives and hard drives uh, just at his house. And his estranged daughter discovered them and turned them over to voting rights advocates who found, among other things, uh, in the 75,000 files contained therein, uh, a memo that Hoffler had written for Texas Republicans in 2015, uh, arguing that if the government added a citizenship question to the census, that it would help Republicans to essentially boost the power of white votes and Republican votes to diminish the power of minority votes and votes for Democrats and help to rig the entire system for white Republicans for years to come. And what is shocking is that language in this 2015 memo is either the exact same or almost the exact same as language that appears in a letter written by a Justice Department official used to justify the census citizenship question under Trump. So you have this memo from 2015 basically saying, here are the racist reasons we should add a census citizenship question. You have language from that 2015 memo popping up verbatim in a, a Justice Department memo years later under Trump. Uh, and then you have the Trump administration saying in court, oh, we don't want to add the citizenship question for racist reasons. We want to add it for anti-racist reasons because we want to enforce the Voting Rights Act. It doesn't all add up. And right now, the plaintiffs who are challenging the citizenship question are trying to actually get sanctions uh, for some Trump DOJ officials because they think they lied. And this letter proves they lied. I, I want to get more into sort of the 2015 memo and what the sort of proposal was that was within it of how to change redistricting, because that's been central to my coverage. People have been reading me on this issue. I've said for a long time that this was my suspicion of why they were doing this. And over the course of litigation, we got more and more evidence, including this memo. But before I do that, I want to just talk about the irony of this and how it's popping up. As you mentioned, it was a sort of chance series of events that kind of let these files fall into the right hands. But before this case went into the Supreme Court, there was a major procedural battle over deposing Wilbur Ross, over deposing John Gore, the DOJ official who wrote the formal request. And there's this irony here that once it did make it to the Supreme Court, one of the arguments the government used was, oh, well, the challengers haven't found evidence to show that Wilbur Ross didn't believe this was going to help enforce the Voting Rights Act. And this was just a really shameless thing to say because the government fought tooth and nail to keep Wilbur Ross from uh, being deposed and being asked about, you know, these other reasons why the administration uh, could be adding the question. So let's play that clip. This is Solicitor General Noel Francisco. He's the you know lawyer who was representing the government at the Supreme Court, and he is making the case that the challengers didn't have evidence of Wilbur Ross's intent here. There is no evidence in this record that the secretary would have asked this question had the Department of Justice not requested it, and there's no evidence in this record that the secretary didn't believe that the Department of Justice actually wanted this information to improve Voting Rights Act enforcement. That was a Solicitor General, and it's just very ironic he was making that argument, given that he had fought an order to depose Wilbur Ross that could have shed light on this very issue. So yeah, let's talk a little bit about exactly if the citizenship question is allowed to stay on the census, if the Supreme Court rules in favor of the challengers, 
what this redistricting change is, because I've written about it. Evan Well is sort of the shorthand I use to talk about it because it relates to a, a 2015 lawsuit that was sort of related to this memo. But why don't you explain a little bit of how redistricting works now and what the change would be that would be so advantageous to Republicans? Right. So a couple things. First of all, we know just immediately that uh, if the citizenship question is added, that response to the census is going to drop in Hispanic and immigrant communities. And that's going to provoke an undercount of these communities, right? So you're going to see states and districts that have large Hispanic and immigrant communities uh, get less representation in Congress less representation in their state legislatures, less federal funding that's allocated on the basis of census data. Uh, It's just going to warp the results in a way that's really bad for certain minority groups. But over the long term, there's a a bigger play here. And this is what Evanwell is about. And this is what the Hoffler letter is about, right? So under current constitutional law, states have to uh, redistrict using total population, Uh, They have to count one person, one vote, right? That's the rule under the Equal Protection Clause. Uh, And they have to create districts of roughly equal populations so that, say, your vote living in one district might not be weighted way more than mine living in another. Uh, Malapportionment is really bad. One person, one vote is a rule designed to stop it. Uh, What Evanwell is about is changing the people who are counted during redistricting. So in Evanwell, a group of plaintiffs said, you know what, we shouldn't be counting people here. We should be counting voters or at least voting eligible citizens because those are the people whose votes really count. So if we say one person, one vote, well, we're talking about votes, so we should be counting voters. The obvious problem with that, uh, at least if you're progressive, is that there are a lot of immigrants in this country, a lot of uh, both authorized and unauthorized immigrants uh, who cannot vote. Uh, there are also obviously a lot of minors, children. There are people who were formerly incarcerated who can't vote. There's a, there's a whole group of people who can't vote in this country. And many of them just wouldn't be counted for the purposes of redistricting. What that would lead to is uh, a new kind of malapportionment in which predominantly white rural areas would receive more representation and urban areas that have more uh, minority Hispanic and immigrant communities are going to receive less representation. The more immigrants there are, the more warped the redistricting of your district will be. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I want to point out there's sort of a a philosophy underneath this current system is that if you're a representative in Congress, you represent all of your constituents, just not just the people who voted for you. If you get a call from your constituent to say, you know, I'm having this issue. Can you help me out? It doesn't matter whether they voted or not, whether they're a citizen or not, whether they're a minor or of voting age. Representatives represent everybody in their district and the current system accounts for that. Um, and that's what Republicans are trying to change here. Right. And and we should say in Evanwell, the Supreme Court said, well, the current system is certainly constitutional, that you can count all people instead of just voters. Uh, but it left the door open for for states to try to only count citizens or voters in the future. And that's what the Hoffler memo is basically about. What Hoffler said is, look, in the future, some state might want to reject the, the traditional 
one person, one vote rule of counting everybody and instead just count citizens or voters or citizens of voting age population. There are different ways to do it, but it's all basically the same. Uh, and what Hoffler said is, if you do that, you're going to want to add a citizenship question to the census. You're going to want to have good data. And as long as you use that data to draw your new districts, you are going to diminish the power of minorities and Democrats, and you're going to boost the power of whites and Republicans for all the reasons we were just discussing. Yeah. Something that's come out in the litigation of the case is that Hoffler was actually the first person, according to a member of the Trump transition team, to suggest adding a citizenship question. So it really kind of draws the line of how this idea started with, you know, a Republican gerrymander and other people who kind of study how to boost Republican power and made it into the census. But let's pivot back to the Supreme Court case, um, because that's what we're waiting for here. And now that we have this sort of backstory here, what we were watching in the Supreme Court arguments is, you know, a debate whether the administration had it, had it in effect lied to the American people and in ha- how it announced and went about going about the citizenship question and this question of whether the, the Voting Rights Act enforcement rationale that they put forward was BS or not. And there's tons of record r- documentation in the trial court record that suggested that it was. Uh, the trial court judge, Jesse Furman, did a pretty meticulous job of uh, kind of going through why the VRA rationale was in fact a pretext, but what Mark and I observed when we were at oral arguments is that in fact it seemed like conservative justices on the court were buying this VRA rationale. John Roberts really went full tilt in totally acting like he believed this rationale, so let's listen to that clip. Do you you think it wouldn't help voting rights uh, enforcement? The CVAP, uh, Citizen uh, uh, Voting Age Population, uh, is the critical element in voting rights uh, uh, enforcement. Um, and this is getting citizen information. So let's talk a little bit. Beyond this memo, what else came up in the trial court record that really showed how, how BS this, this rationale was? Um, I know one of the things that stood out to me was there was all these internal emails in the early days of the administration where where Wilbur Ross uh, you know, said he wanted to... From the very early days, well before there was any sort of formal request uh, to add the citizenship question, told his aides he wanted it. And one of his aides went shopping around, went to the DOJ first, got rebuffed from the DOJ, then went to the Department of Homeland Security and got rebuffed at the Department of Homeland Security. And I should say, when he first went to the DOJ, he talked to an immigration lawyer and then wrote this memo kind of just discussing all these issues that he had. Now, Kind of doesn't seem like to me you're looking to enforce voting rights if that's who you're talking to. Um, but yeah, was there anything else in that in that trial record that really stood out to you? Uh, I mean, that's the big thing, and and that he essentially had to pull rank on these lower ranking DOJ officials and say, look, if you don't give me what I want, I'm going to call Jeff Sessions, who was then Attorney General, and like uh, tattle on you, <laughs> and had to really just uh, almost extort the DOJ into cooking up this nonsense round. Rationale, um, and it really shows in the Gore letter. I think it shows. It's such a weak argument. I mean, there's there's so much evidence that all of the information we have today is perfectly sufficient to enforce the Voting Rights Act, which is again something the Trump administration is not enforcing. Uh, and Ross really seemed to either misrepresent or just lie about all of the administrative records that currently exist regarding citizenship. So, you know, one of the kind of wonky but important 
important rules about the census that Congress itself has passed is that Congress doesn't want uh, the executive branch adding questions to the census because there's all this evidence that shows that even a benign new question can cause confusion and drop response rates, right? So we want the census to be really short. Congress says it wants the census to be really short. Uh, Ross adds this question anyway. But Congress specifically said, if you can find the information you want from other administrative records, from somewhere else in the government, basically, if there's a filing cabinet in another agency that has what you're looking for, go there. Don't add this question and fundamentally change the census that hundreds of millions of people are going to answer. Go use the data that the government has already meticulously collected. And the government already has citizenship data. It already has it. It's been asked on the long form census survey that goes to not every household, but I think one in six, the American Community Survey, uh, one in 30. You know, it, it's been collected over various, uh, through various mechanisms. And it's like pretty well established that it could easily be used. It has easily been used uh, to ensure that the Voting Rights Act is being enforced. Actually, one of the experts that the Trump administration has tried to cite to say that that evidence is insufficient is a guy named Nate Persilli. He is one of the experts on voting rights and gerrymandering. And the Trump administration cited a brief and a, and a paper that he wrote to claim that, oh, we just don't have enough information about citizenship to enforce the VRA. We need more. Just read Persilli. Persilli got so angry, he had to go to Twitter and say he was outraged to see that his work was being manipulated and miscited. So they are going to the very bottom of the barrel. I mean, they are they are working as hard as they can in the Trump administration to cook up a rationale here. And it's just not true. It's not working. You have to suspend disbelief to accept these arguments. And yeah, I want to I want to talk a little bit about the, the disbelief suspension that's that's happening here in this case. But first, just to kind of tie the knot on this VRA claim and how bogus it is, uh, Dale Ho, an ACLU attorney who argued the case in the Supreme Court, at some point in the hearing, answered this question of, wouldn't this help enforce the VRA? And he made a very good point about by warping the census numbers, it's going to make it even harder to enforce the VRA and just totally undermines the whole rationale here. So let's listen to that clip. Adding a citizenship question to the census, I'm sorry, is not helpful for Voting Rights Act purposes, because responses to the question are inaccurate so frequently for non-citizens. Citizenship matters in the Voting Rights Act context when you're dealing with a population in which there's a large number of non-citizens. The VRA requires the drawing of districts in which minority voters constitute a majority um, sometimes under some circumstances. Now, under normal circumstances, voting age population data will be sufficient for that purpose if citizenship rates are high. But if the minority group has relatively low citizenship rates, for example, as is the case with Hispanic um, populations in some circumstances, then you need citizenship data to make sure that you're drawing a district in which uh, minority voters are, in fact, a majority of the population. And data that's wrong one-third of the time with respect to non-citizens just doesn't help you draw districts well, at we, that granular block-by-block block level. And that was ACLU attorney Dale Ho talking about the VRA rationale and why adding a citizenship question would not help enforce the VRA. Um, but yeah, we, there was a lot of uh, disbelief suspension in the hearing. And one of the things that the DOJ has really hung its entire case on was the Census Bureau, after the administration sort of said it wanted to add this question, did all these studies did all this work to kind of show the administration, hey, we have all these existing records, 
citizenship records that can be used to sort of make the VRA data even more accurate. We will do all this extra work with the the existing records. Please just do that instead of adding a citizenship question because it's going to harm the accuracy. And and remind us who was saying this here. This was not the ACLU, right? This (laughs) this was the top scientist at the Census Bureau, John Abowd, who uh, wrote multiple memos. He testified at the trial. um, And he said consistently, this is a bad idea. And the whole, and and he said, the memo said, this information will be more accurate than what you will get asking a question on a, on a census. And the, the reason is because studying this whole issue, they realized that people had a tendency to lie if they were asked if their, their citizenship status and they were non-citizens. I think it was one in third non-citizens stated falsely. If you ask them their, their status, they would, they would misrepresent it. On a, on a survey like this. But there's a bunch of other records the Bureau can use, court records, DHS records, legal records, jury form records, that you don't have this problem of people misrepresenting it that are even more accurate than asking on the census. Anyway, what the DOJ is hanging its entire case on, essentially, is that, and this was almost nowhere in the Ross memo, it's a, barely a footnote, but basically, the Census Bureau had said this will be more accurate than adding a census citizenship question, but we just can't tell you yet how much more accurate it can be. And the DOJ's argument was, well, Ross couldn't, you know, since they couldn't quanti- quantify it, uh, he, he did the, the reasonable thing and trusted the thing that was quantifiable, asking it on, the, on the, the census form, because there was some quantification of the accuracy in that, in that version. So here is uh, Justice Kagan sort of tearing the DOJ apart for trying to do this post hoc rationalization. And if I may say, I'll just finish here, General. I mean, a lot of your argument, your your briefs are extremely well done, but a lot of your argument just do not appear in the Secretary's decision memo. And and the fact that uh, SG lawyers can come up with 60 pages of explanation uh, for a decision, that's all post hoc rationalization. The question is, what did the Secretary say? Where did he say it? When did he say it? What does it mean other than just ipsa dixit and sure. conclusions? Your, Your Honor, I, I'm tempted to pocket the compliment and sit down, but I won't do that. All right. That was Justice Kagan. Um, so there were some other dubious arguments that were thrown about at the oral arguments. Uh, Mark, what were the, some of the other striking moments that made you feel a little bit skeptical about how this was going to end up? Well, one that really blew me away was the conservative justices falling in love with international law all of a sudden. Um, both justices uh, Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh testified at their confirmation hearings about how they really don't like to rely on international law, how, you know, it's our constitution and our law. It's all about America. We shouldn't be looking beyond our shores to figure out what the law means. Um, That's sort of a rebuke to Justice Anthony Kennedy, who did sometimes cite international law. And because of Kennedy's uh, appreciation for international law, uh, legal conservatives have really come to hate it in recent years. It's almost become a kind of bedrock principle of the Federalist Society types that international law is bogus, it's bad, and in particular that it shouldn't be cited 
in any way, shape, or form when in evaluating American law. And yet, during oral arguments, I was uh, shocked to hear that uh, Justice Brett Kavanaugh himself started talking about how uh, other nations ask a citizenship question and why shouldn't we? And then, lo and behold, Justice Gorsuch asked a very similar question about international law. And I, I was just blown away by this because you already have John Roberts, who hates the Voting Rights Act, pretending to care deeply about the Voting Rights Act to uphold the citizenship question. Now you have two arch conservatives pretending to care about international law. How much more hypocritical can you get? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's uh, let's play um, those clips. We've got one clip from uh, Brett Kavanaugh, one clip from Just, uh, Justice Gorsuch. The United He's- Nations recommends that countries ask a citizenship question on the census, and a number of other countries uh, do it, Spain, Germany, Canada. What do we do as well with, with the evidence of practice around the world? And virtually every English-speaking country and a great many others besides ask this question in their censuses. All right, and that was two recently appointed conservative justices uh, discovering in very recent weeks that international law might might be worth considering in these cases. <laughs> Surprise. Surprise. Um, can't wait to hear more about that. Uh, anyway, so... As we get sort of towards the end of this discussion, let's talk a little bit. Uh, Mark, you wrote a pretty uh, pessimistic take coming out of the of the hearing. You know, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about sort of the policy angle here, but maybe you can talk about what this means for the Supreme Court if they do rule in favor of upholding a, a citizenship question. Well, I, I think the conservative majority is at risk of really torching the court's legitimacy. Um, I, I mean, it, it will seem if the, after the travel ban decision last year, if this case comes down in favor of the administration that five conservative Republican justices just give Trump and his administration a free pass, that they are willing to accept the pretext that everyone knows, every serious rational person knows, is pretext, is nonsense, was all cooked up after the fact. Uh, And and I think that a lot of Americans, virtually all Democrats and many non-liberal Americans, are going to look at this court and say, what are you doing? You know, you're, you're, you're cheap cheapening the the independence of the court, you're cheapening its prestige in order to do a favor for Trump, for the party that appointed you. I I mean, it's just going to be, I think, really bad for the court in the long term. I think Roberts knows that, but I don't think he cares enough to swing left in this case. So yeah, and I think what we'll see next, beyond sort of just what this means for the Supreme Court, we'll have the census happen next year. There's currently a, within the census, they're in the process of deciding whether to make this data available to redistricting offices and state legislatures, which goes back to what we started the podcast talking about the original purpose, which is to change how redistricting is done to boost Republicans. So I think what we'll see next is in 2020, 2021, states say they're going to do this. There's probably another rash of legal challenges, and we'll be back here in the D.C. Bureau podcast office talking about a Supreme Court hearing dealing with that issue. But this is definitely just, I think, that if the Supreme Court does keep this question on the census, I think this is just sort of the beginning of the story. I think we're going to be hearing a lot more about what it does to the census. Already we're seeing troubling signs of people not wanting, including businesses, not wanting to help out promoting the census because they feel like it's already been so politicized by this move. Even though we're going to have a decision in a couple weeks, assuming the question stays on, I think it's still just the beginning of the story. So I think I'll leave it at that. Anything else you want to add before I 
say goodbye to our, our dear listeners? No, I think that's all the bad news that's fit to print. <laughs> yeah. All right. Before we go, we have one last message from John. Um, thanks so much. Yeah, of course. Uh, and thanks so much for listening. Hi there, this is John Light in the New York office. I'm one of TPM's editors, and I'm here to remind you that the way we pay for everything we do is with memberships. We recently uh, passed 30,000 members, which is very exciting for us, uh, but we need to keep growing our membership program if we want to keep doing what we do. So becoming a member gets you extra stories, it gets you fewer ads on the site, you get to post on a special member forum, and you get a bunch of other good stuff, but it also means you're supporting us, you're supporting the podcast, you're supporting our investigative reporting, you're supporting everything that we do. We have a special offer for podcast listeners, 20% off a TPM Prime membership. To get that offer, go to talkingpointsmemo.com slash deal. Again, that's talkingpointsmemo.com slash deal. We'll see you next week.